He's leading two expert mixed leagues. We'll ask MLB.com contributor and labor and tout mixed league leader Fred Zinke about his roster strategies, his aggressively tactical trading, player buys and sells, and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Swung on, high fly ball to left center should do it. There's Foster, and the 1976 World's Championship belongs to the Cincinnati Reds. In the ninth inning, the Yankees are out in order as the Reds in this fourth game in sweeping. Billy Martin's New York Yankees do it decisively, four in the ninth inning, and a 7-2 final score. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of July the 5th. Happy 4th of July to our American listeners. Happy Canada Day. Just passed to our Canadian listeners. It's show number 25 of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. And in addition to MLB.com contributor Fred Zinke, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll open with player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, and from the American League with columnist Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly chat with Todd Zola, talking about strategies for the Ron Chandler Monthly Leagues. In our HQ matchup segment, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at Hector Santiago against the Cubs and Zach Greinke facing the Diamondbacks. And in Master Notes, Jock Thompson doing double duty talks about how it's time to assess your Keeper League rebuild. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. You remember a couple of weeks ago when I said you might need to save some fab for Manny Ramirez? Well, you do. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, just a couple of weeks after I joked about Manny offering his services to Major League Clubs, One of those clubs, the Texas Rangers, has signed the former slugger to a minor league deal. I'll ask our American League beat reporter Jock Thompson about this in just a second, and if I remember, I'll ask Fred Zinke too. You know, this sounds weird, but it's not a bad deal for Texas. They're ninth out of 15 American League teams in getting OPS out of their DH slot, mostly because Lance Berkman has been hobbled by a wonky knee. So Ramirez might help the team, and from the Rangers' point of view, it costs them essentially nothing to find out. They'll just send Manny a few paychecks at AAA and it won't break their bank, especially since he might just throw the checks into his glove compartment and not cash them. And Manny appears to be on his best behavior. He's agreed to a set of conditions that sound like the Rangers are trying to make him a member of the 1975 Reds. Hair above the shoulders, baseball uniform pants instead of loungewear and running out grounders, being on time for games and practices. Manny must realize this is his last straw, and he's clinging to it. But that doesn't mean even a great hitter like Manny Ramirez can come back after three years away from the big leagues. We'll stay in the big leagues for the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. 
Todd Zola's in the hole with his weekly conversation. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Let's start with uh, Brent Hershey. He had a facts and flukes column uh, looking at some of the players in the big leagues. And one of the names that popped out for me was Matt Holliday, the outfielder of St. Louis. Like most fantasy players who have been around for a while, I've had Matt Holliday on my team a time or two, and he's always been pretty good for a $30 season. This year, not so much. No, this year, but Matt Holliday's not doing as well as uh, as we might expect. And if you look at overall in his season, it may not be that all that disappointing in uh, in uh, nominal terms. I mean, currently hitting two sixty seven with eleven home runs and batting uh, batting a decent number of runs. So, but but if you expected uh, 25, 25 to thirty home runs and a three hundred BA, you're not going to get it. At least not so far. So, what's going on with Matt Holliday? Is he is he going to recover or is he just getting old? Uh, if we look at what's happening, his Matt Holliday has usually had a low 30% hit rate, and that's kind of allowed him to out-hit his XBA in most seasons. And this year's current hit rate is 29%. It's a little bit low. That should recover. June was 34%. He hit 291 in June. Uh, looks like he could, if he keeps his hit rate up, uh, do better the best the rest of the way. Uh, also making better contact than he has in the past. His, his batting eye is back up a little bit. Uh, so that's good. So that bodes well for his, his rebound in terms of batting average and in power. But one kind of thing that's a little bit ominous, if you look at, at his, his ground balls, fly balls ratio, ground balls are now coming at 50 or 50% rate. That's high for Matt Holliday, 4% higher than, than the last two years. Fly balls are down to 33%. So uh, what that means is that, that he's likely to show less power if he keeps hitting that many balls on the ground. So Matt Holliday is probably good for a decent second half, a uh, full rebound is something perhaps we shouldn't uh, shouldn't plan for. Yeah, I noticed that his home run per fly ball rate is right around where it was in his salad days, uh, 2009, 2010, when he was a high 20s home run type guy at 14% a home run per fly ball rate. The problem is there's just not a, not enough fly balls. That's right. At this point, there aren't enough fly balls to, uh, to have that fly ball rate uh, make a real difference. And as a result, his power index is down below 100 for the first time in many years. Uh, 100 is league average power. 96 is where he's at right now. Uh, obviously a sign to be concerned about. Maybe this is a situation where if you feel like gambling, maybe you take a chance on Matt Holiday doing a rebound. And if you hold him on a team that is uh, you're trying to anchor down, maybe it's time to think about seeing if somebody will buy his name. Uh, let's move on to... Um, Dan Becker's batting buyer's guide column. He looked at some Lima targets, and one of the names, uh, this is a bit of a surprise to me, that Brian McCann, the catcher in Atlanta, would come up as a Lima target. He, this is a big name. It is a big name, but if you look at last year, Brian McCann last year hit two thirty, and uh, he, was, he was not uh, certainly the, the, uh, the hitter last year that he had been in the past, although he did hit 20 home runs and 67 RBI, but that two thirty BA was a bit troublesome. If you look at what's going on this year, we begin to see a rebound in that batting average. He's up to 268. He has 10 home runs at this point, suggesting that he could be at 20-plus by the end of the season. RBIs are down a little bit, and he was out for a while. So so some of that is a result of not being in the lineup. But actually, Brian McCann is showing a bit of a rebound uh, so far this year. He's he's making a lot of hard contact. His batting eye is good. Uh, his uh, power index is, is up. In fact, it's uh, the highest of his career at this point. A home run per fly is the highest of his career, so we might see that come down just a little bit. But at this point, Brian McCann is looking pretty good. Uh, at his, his hit rate is, has been lagging. 24% a year ago, 27% this year. That's kind of kept that batting average a bit depressed. 
Uh, if his hit rate gets back up into the 30s, we can see a guy who's hitting close to 300 uh, as a catcher, and we'll get uh, get uh, another 12, 14 home runs in the second half. Well, he's certainly hitting a lot of fly balls, 42% fly ball rate, 24% line drive rate, both auger well for power and for batting average. Uh, Brian McCann, like I said, he's a well-known player, and he's hardly going to be a sleeper, but at this point maybe you make an offer to his owner, say, hey, he's only hitting two sixty-eight, and uh, you know has, has a, a limited success so far, 10 homers and 28 RBIs because of the injury. Hey, maybe you make a, a buy-low offer and see what happens. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a possibility. Given the fact that he hit 230 last year, that 268 may look uh, look a little shaky at this point. So you could always use that in a uh, in an argument in, ter- in terms of prying him away. But here's a guy that in the second half might uh, might return something close to what he did in 2008, 2009. Stephen Nickrand's pitching buyer's guide column, one of the best columns at BaseballHQ.com for a very long time. It looked at some BPV leaders for June, and one of the pitchers from the New York Mets that caught my eye and it wasn't Zach Wheeler, and it wasn't Matt Harvey. Jeremy Hefner had a really nice ERA for June and skills to match. Jeremy Hefner had a great ERA for June. And, you know, if you look at uh, if you look at that, in fact, I saw somewhere I think that Jeremy Hefner's ERA was uh, was uh, the, probably the third best in the National League in the month of June. So, you know, and he's way out there in, in a lot of waiver wires. So the question you begin to ask is, this is the guy you want to pick up. And Jeremy Hefner, if you look at his overall skills for the year, and we looked at him in a fact fluke column also this year, that looked at overall skills. Overall, 3.72 ERA right now, BPV of 75. Uh, this is not a uh, not a high strikeout pitcher. His dom is up a little bit this year, but uh, really a, a control guy. So, uh, And at this point, a high strand rate. So while his uh, XERA is only 4.07, uh, that 3.72 ERA is kind of being propped up by a uh, by a, a bit of a high strand rate. Um, but if you look overall, what Stephen Nickrand did was to look at what's been going on by month. If you look by month at what's happening, uh, first of all, his command, 1.8, 2.4, and suddenly in June, 4.6 command. So uh, getting some strikeouts and getting the ball over the plate a lot. And then his BPV has grown by month also, 42, 68, 112. So steady improvement by month in terms of his BPV. So this looks like a guy who's probably worth taking a gamble on as you head into the second half. He's been pitching well. He's been getting better. Uh, it's certainly possible that he could uh, he get a very nice second half. And BPV is base performance value. It's a combined metric that looks at all of the skills that we uh, focus on here at BaseballHQ.com. And 112 BPV is very, very good. Uh, Jeremy Hefner's uh, going to be one of those guys that is not going to attract a lot of interest because he's buried on a bad team, but he could be a, a guy worth looking at. He could indeed. Now, one thing that, uh, that Jeff Tomich pointed out that's certainly, I think, worth considering is his, dom dis, his dominance disc percentage, 38% dominance starts, 19% disaster, so not winning up with a lot of disaster start, but not being real dominating in his starts either. This is a guy who's kind of a, uh, a PQS 2-3 sort of guy, uh, and so that's something to keep in mind. And finally, uh, Nick, when I hear the name Eric Stoltz, I always think of the actor who was in Mask and some and Pulp Fiction and a few other things. But he's a left-handed pitcher in San Diego, of course, and he, he's been catching a few eyes. He's 34 years old, and he exceeded 100 major league innings for the first time when he was 33, and that should raise some doubts, but maybe not. Well, you know, this is a guy who had a 2.91 ERA last year. Uh, and, and sort of seemed to come out of nowhere. XERA 4.53, though, said that there was a lot of luck involved. But if we look at what's going on this year, 3.51 ERA, 
4.15 XERA. He's pitching pretty well. This is not a guy who's going to be a, a real rotation anchor for you, but his, his dominance is up a little this year. It's, uh, was 5.0 a year ago, now up to 5.8. So striking out almost uh, one more batter per, per nine innings. Uh, and if you look at his PQS strategy, this is a guy who keeps his team in the game. Uh, only, I think, two PQS disasters in 17 starts so far. Uh, not a whole lot of dominant starts. but uh, he, So he's not going to anchor your rotation, but he's probably not going to kill you either if he doesn't throw those disastrous kinds of starts. So I think a guy worth looking at, especially in deep leagues. He could, uh, he's done well over the past two years and could certainly be a contributor uh, in deep leagues over the second half. One of those kind of guys, again, that you have to look at and see how he fits your roster. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We will catch up with you again next week. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com and is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn it over to the American League. And BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be back. Maybe before we start talking about what you might call real news in the American League, let's start with uh, the novelty item of the week. Uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago where I kind of made a joke that uh, Manny Ramirez was asking around in major leagues looking for a job. And lo and behold, he has one. He's been signed by the Texas Rangers, and from the tone of the news coverage, it sounds like they plan to bring him back to the major leagues. Can this possibly work? Can Manny Ramirez really become a valuable, useful player for Texas or for fantasy owners? Well, you got to wonder if Texas isn't panicking just a little bit here. They didn't have a right-handed batter other than Jerickson Profar um, off the bench for the for the game the other night. Uh, they were missing uh, Lance Berkman. He has a knee problem. Uh, Jeff Baker's hurt. Um, obviously, the, the Rangers are hurting in the power department, too. They haven't hit a lot of home runs recently. So um, it, it is a curious move, given how smart the Angels have been in managing their roster and their organization, because uh, I, I personally just don't see it. Well, Manny Ramirez has been one of the most productive hitters over the last, uh, what, 20, 25 years or so. I guess the question is, can he get anywhere near back to that kind of form? Yeah, and, and the question is, is how long ago was he productive? I mean, it's been two or three years, and he really hasn't played against the competition he's going to be seeing in Texas. So they sure made yesterday interesting, didn't they? They certainly did. His last year in the big leagues, 2011, he had a minus 66 OPS plus. He barely played in Tampa. The year before that, he had uh, less than 100 at-bats in uh, Chicago and about uh, 200 at Los Angeles Dodgers, and he hit 298, Jock, which is not bad, uh, slugging a 460, which is pretty uh, mundane, but he was tearing it up in Taiwan. Yeah, yeah it'll be interesting. Uh, I get, oof, boy, Manny Ramirez. Welcome back, Manny. Yeah. I'll tell you I'll, bet you, I'll bet you when he gets activated or when he's subject to the rules of acquisition in a lot of fantasy leagues, I bet a lot of people are going to f- acquire him. Oh, I think you're right. I think given the power shortage right now, the, the fact that uh, fantasy owners are just looking like crazy for home runs, I think he's going to get picked up by a lot of people. I think so, and uh, I think they're going to be disappointed. Matt Dodge noted that uh, Scott Feldman was traded from the Cubs to Baltimore last week, and he had a nice game versus the White Sox this past uh, week. How do you see Scott Feldman fitting into the Orioles, and more importantly, how is he going to produce? Well, I think Matt pointed out something really smart in his uh, playing time today take, and and that has to do with uh, Feldman's ground ball rate. He's keeping the ball on the ground a lot this year. It's uh, it's at 51%. Um, He's been up and down throughout his career. The year before that, he was at 42%. year before that, 62%. And then in 210, 
2010, 43%. So he, he's not a sure bet to do this, but he's going to have to do it in Camden Yard and particularly in the American League East because it's a home run hitter's park. And if he can do that, he can survive. Obviously, I think that's more important than uh, than what he did against the White Sox the other night, who are, who's obviously one of the worst hitting teams in baseball right now. They are, and he's he's been a sort of an okay type of pitcher without being a really great pitcher. He was uh, bouncing around between slightly above average in the odd-numbered years, 2009-2011. He was an ERA plus of about 114 or so. And then in the even-numbered years, 2010 and 12, all in Texas, he was in the in the mid-80s. So if, if the odd-number-year things hold, then maybe he's going to be valuable. But he hasn't ever been great. No, that's right. And his, his dominance has bounced around a little bit, too. I mean, he's been... He's been above six occasionally. Now he's down around five. Um, he's really marginal in that area. So I think that ground ball rate is pretty critical. Matt also reported about Tom Wilhelmson resuming the closer role in Seattle, according to manager Eric Wedge. And indeed, Wilhelmson picked up a save a few nights ago when the Mariners beat Texas. Now, Oliver Perez had been the hot pickup after he was considered the potential closer in that situation. And he got featured at BaseballHQ.com in Matt Gelfand's Facts and Flukes column. How do Wilhelmson and Perez compare for the balance of the season? Well, if you're in a deep league, I wouldn't be dropping Oliver Perez right now because, uh, and we and we may have talked about this in previous episodes of uh, of HQ Radio, but uh, Tom Wilhelmson's BPIs don't inspire a lot of confidence. Um, he has they haven't been particularly stable. His dominance is down to 6.6 strikeouts per nine innings. His control is way up. His fastball is very straight. Um, he he gets a lot of ground balls. Um, I, I just think he's going to be up and down in this closer role. And Seattle has, has better power arms than Tom Wilhelmson, and, and I think Oliver Perez is one of them. Um, Perez, uh, his, his control isn't anything to write home about, but he's getting more strikeouts, and um, he seems to be a lot more consistent than Wilhelmson is. Is there a possibility for a third candidate? I'm thinking of guys like uh, Charlie Furbush, Car- Carter Capps. They're, they seem to have guys in there who can throw strikes, even Stephen Pryor should he come back. Yeah, they sure do. And Pryor is a good name to mention. He's coming off the DL. He'll he'll be back uh, soon. Um, you've got you've got guys like Caps and and even Furbush. All of those guys have uh, BPVs that are that are much higher than uh, than Wilhelmson. So yeah, I I think Seattle closer the closer role is still an open book for the rest of the season. Wilhelmson may have gotten his job back temporarily, but uh, who knows how long that'll last. In his bullpen buyer's guide talking of closers and a mid-season assessment, Doug Dennis of BaseballHQ.com noted Oakland lefty Sean Doolittle as an outstanding target to pick up, especially in deep leagues. What about uh, Sean Doolittle, Jock, and is there any chance he could maybe pick up some saves in the second half? Yeah, I I think there is a chance here. Um, Oakland has a really good bullpen. Um, There's certainly no slouches there. Um, um, Graham Balfour has been pretty good in the closer role on the surface, but if you look at his... uh, his numbers, his uh, his BPV compared to guys like Doolittle and Ryan Cook, um, he's sitting on a um, um, an 84 BPV when when both Cook and uh, and Doolittle are are right around 100 right around 120 BPVs. Um, Doolittle's interesting. He's a lefty who's hard on righties. I also like Cook because he's even a little harder on right, on right-handed hitters. He's a he's he's obviously a a right-handed reliever, which gives him uh, might give him a better chance longer term than closing uh, 
than uh, than than Doolittle. Um, the interesting thing, if you're in a keeper league, is that Balfour's contract expires at the end of this year. So you can almost bet that one of those guys, Doolittle or um, Ryan Cook, is going to be the closer next year. So that's important for keeper leagues. I'm going to say that I, I think that if Oakland stays in the race as they appear prepared to, I'm not sure that Grant Balfour is going to lose this role. He's still striking out nine guys per nine innings. His walk rate is about what it was last year when he was pretty successful. His home run rate up slightly, um, but his whip is right around one and his ERA is right around uh, 1.9. Boy, it's pretty hard to argue with that kind of performance. Uh, he's got 20 saves so far this year. All in all, I think Sean Doolittle and uh, Ryan Cook are both good Lima guys to add for ratio purposes. But if you're expecting saves out of either of them, I think you, you might be uh, more wishing than planning, shall we say. Uh, Bob Berger, Jock, noted in his American League Central Division Outlook column that Minnesota outfielder Aaron Hicks is ready to come off the DL. And he has an opening for playing time because Josh Willingham is going on the DL. So I have two questions for you. First, how do you like Aaron Hicks? And second, who else does Willingham's injury benefit, especially in the longer term for the Twins? Right now, I'm not a big fan of Hicks. Obviously, he has some development to do, and his longer term uh, looks better than than his current status. Uh, If you just look at his numbers, over 197 at-bats, he has uh, an expected batting average of... um, uh, something of, of geez, at two two twelve, and his his actual batting average is one eighty three. He's he's got a little power. He's got six home runs. He he hasn't translated his really good speed into a running game yet. Um, we're projecting him for I think sixty five percent playing time. But the thing you have to do with Willingham's injury is look at the entire uh, uh, Minnesota outfield, and they've been pretty anemic all year. The guy that it really helps is a guy you and I both like, Oswaldo Arcia. Um, who has really put up the best numbers in that outfield. And what, what Willingham's departure to the DL suggests is that Arsha is not going back down to the minors. There was, there was some talk that uh, he might return to the minors because of the, uh, the Rule 2 and, and, and delaying his arbitration with a few more days. But uh, Arsha's put up a, a pretty good year. He's got a, an 814 OPS. Um, he's, uh, he's hitting 289. He's shown good power. That's the guy I like in the Minnesota outfield right now. I agree with you, and he he just looks like he knows what he's doing out there. So uh, uh, I don't I don't think Aaron Hicks is the guy. Frankly, I like Arcia both in the short term and in the long. And uh, I wonder how long it is before Josh Willingham is traded once he comes off the DL. I, I think Arcia is the long term pick here. Finally, Jock, you noted in your American League West division outlook column that Hank Conger of the Angels is picking up some playing time at the expense of Chris Iannetta. Hank Conger was a guy that a lot of us liked way back when he was a prospect, and he kind of struggled in his first few times at the big league level. He seems to be putting things together. Am I seeing things here? What about you? Yeah, and, and what I'm seeing, I mean, he's he's more impressive on the field right now than I think even the numbers suggest. Uh, I watched um, Wednesday night's game against St. Louis. He hit another home run. He threw out two base runners. His caught stealing is now 41%, which is really shocking given the, the his March struggles that almost banished him back to AAA. Um, he's hitting for power. He just looks like a different player on the field. And Ionetta is just hasn't done anything this year other than walk. Um, at 25, Conger may just be a guy who's coming into his own now. We've seen it before with catchers. He really looks confident. If if you own uh, Ionetta in your fantasy league and Conger's a free agent, that's a swap I would make immediately. Yeah, I like Hank Conger a lot. I liked him a long time ago. A bit of disappointment, as I mentioned, but. Uh, catchers take longer to develop sometimes because of the defensive burdens. Uh, Hank Conger could be um, a 
diamond in the rough, uh, ready to really come out and become a really outstanding player. Before I let you go, Jock, uh, what's your over-under on Manny Ramirez's home runs at the major league level for the balance of this season? Um, I'm going to give him three. I, I think they're going to give him a chance in Texas and see what happens, but uh, I, boy, I just, I'm skeptical. I just don't see it, don't see it working out. Boy, and I'll tell you what, I was hoping you'd go a little higher because I would have taken the under. I have him about three as well. Jock, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. Have a good weekend. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time to talk with Todd, our regular weekly conversation with Todd Zola. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. A lot of the talk around fantasy baseball of late, especially in the Baseball HQ community, has been Ron Chandler's effort to start this new concept of monthly rotisserie leagues. You draft, you play for a month, uh, and I know you have uh, taken on a team, and you recently at your KFFL roundtable have been discussing with some other experts. Uh, what's, what do you think is the optimal strategy for going into these leagues? And tell us about yours. There, actually, there's a lot of strategy involved, because this is a... Uh... It's a pretty labor-intensive uh, setup there that Ron's got going on with the the salary cap and the fact that you can make twice a week moves. The uh, you, know, you get seven reserves and you the standard twenty-three man roster, and it's scored rotisserie style. So you have to decide the main strategy is what do you use your reserves for? Do you use them to potentially hedge against injuries? Uh, do you use them to supplement your pitching or supplement your hitting? And I thought in a one-month uh, format where, you know, basically there's just pride on the line here that I'm going to just go for it. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to worry so much about injuries. Uh, if I get injured, well, you know what? I mean, I got, I got injuries. Everybody's going to get injuries. I'm going to assume everybody's going to stay healthy and try to figure out a way to maximize both my hitting and my pitching as far as uh, innings and at bats go. So I split my reserves fairly straight, fairly equal down the middle, uh, four hitters and three pitchers. And the idea being at the halfway point of the week, I'm going to be able to get the pitchers in that didn't have a start the first half of the week and get them in for the second half. Some of the guys are going to have starts the whole week. So I should be able to maximize my starts uh, using every single pitcher I have for all his starts that week and still have hitters left over because I think one of the – everybody's going to look to amp up the pitching, but I think people are going to sort of ignore the fact that there are going to be some hitters with three games and some hitters with four games. And if you can get the guys in there with four games more than three, those extra 20 or 30 or 40 plate appearances you get are going to be the difference on the fringes in a league of this nature. Uh, so I think I'm getting greedy. I'm trying to do both hitting and pitching with my reserves and, and, and avoiding, and not avoiding, but hoping I don't get injured. You mentioned the salary cap aspect of this uh, format, Todd, and that means that uh, the salaries are preset and you just pick your team to stay under a $300 salary cap for all 23 guys plus seven reserves. So that's an average of about 10 bucks. But the salaries are set based on what's gone on so far this year, so there are going to be lots of bargains. Uh, Robinson Cano's at 22. That seems pretty reasonable. A guy like Jose Reyes, who's been mostly injured all year, is at 5 bucks. So it seems logical that most teams are going to load up on guys like that, and the, the difference is going to be the guys you get that aren't in those positions. There are players that I do think 
I may say, I, Leonis Martin is a guy that I picked up who, even because he's expensive, I just think he's going to have a very good second half. So I have a suspicion that he may not be uh, on a whole lot of rosters. Um, right. I did, you know, take a shot on a Josh Hamilton uh, that, that really, really cheap as well. That I think some people may even avoid him as cheap as he is. Uh, but, you know, in, in a Jason Hayward as well. So I didn't necessarily, I'm going to pick someone that no one else picked, but I did think about the guys at the top that I felt that would really have the best chance of sustaining their uh, their, their their present rate of production, Chris Davis being one of them. And I, I guess I sort of, when I took Davis, I did sort of figure he might be a guy that even even as great as he's doing, people might shy away from him. Figuring he, you know, with that strikeout rate, he could have, he could have a horrible month. You know, Chris Davis could have a terrible month very easily, and he's one yeah. of the more expensive players, if not the most expensive player on the you know, in the in the game. And uh, it, it is a calculated gamble, but if he keeps going, as you said, maybe uh, maybe you're catching lightning in a bottle because a lot of guys will avoid that. Now, Todd, it was interesting that. The format of the league is four by four rotisserie, but the categories are not the same as as usual. Instead of the four usual four by four batting categories, we have home runs, which is of course common, but on base percentage and stolen bases is common. But he has a, a category called runs produced, which is runs scored plus RBIs take away the home runs to avoid the double counting. On the pitcher side, wins, strikeouts, saves plus holds, which really raises the value of those middle relievers, and ERA. And I'm wondering, because there's now only one ratio category among pitching, did that have any effect on your decision-making and the, the wins plus holds uh, situation? Did that have any difference making on your decision-making? Yeah, it did matter. The, the one ratio on either way um, mattered to me as far as the reserves go because it, it actually made it harder. Uh with one ratio category, that means there's three counting stats, and that means if there were if there was an unequal, if it was a regular five by five, the you would need to focus more on pounding up the counting stats of the hitters because there's four categories versus three, uh, as far as what you do for the reserves and maximizing your plate appearances and that sort of thing. But since he uh, cleverly or smartly or purposely made it uh, one and one then, you know, now you've got to decide which way do you go. Do you go to the, you know, the hitters or the pitchers? So the fact that there's only one, it did matter for me. One of the attractive ideas behind the monthly leagues when Ron first proposed them was that they allowed you to get your uh, your fix of drafts more frequently. You know, ordinarily we draft in late March or early April, and then that's it till a year later, late March, early April. Now we get to draft uh, six different times if we play in these leagues. The downside to me is the the way that the league is structured with these twice-weekly moves is that there's not a lot of room for somebody who feels a little overburdened with their uh, time management on, on running rotisserie or playing their fantasy baseball games anyways. What's your opinion on the idea that there's this many moves that you have to make and you're going to have to make them to be competitive? Well, in this particular setup, obviously, yes, you do. And I think some people are going to find out that they overlooked the fact that there's going to be a grinder out there that's going to take advantage of the the reserve list and make a ton of moves and has probably sat down and mapped out the schedule and figured out the players that have the most home games or, you know, avoid the big parks or that sort of thing. Um, And and it's not just a matter of picking your your 30 favorite players. 
I like to set up in a vacuum because I think I think you need to sort of have an uh, something in between what might be the most labor intensive down the line if it continues to grow and just having it to be a simple draft and hold where you might just get into the it just you just take it it's too too cavalier of an approach i like you know i like the idea of it but i think we both know that you know this is just this is just a trial balloon who knows where it can go uh you know you don't even have to use a salary cap you can just get together with with 12 buds on the first of every month you know draft a new team it doesn't take that long to do a, you know, an online draft and you know make up silly rules about you know you you can't pick the same player you know you know that you had the last month or right. or something you know something like that so the, you know monthly leagues is the broad topic these you know this is just in theory one specific you know incarnation of what could become a, a bigger fad going forward thanks todd we'll catch up with you again next week thank you patrick Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, KFFL, MastersBall.com, ESPN.com. This guy's a very busy guy, and you should seek him out. Our feature interview with Fred Zinke of MLB.com is next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. And the pitch. Swung on in a high drive center field. Jones is going back. He turns. He looks. And that ball is history. Josh Hamilton has hit his fourth home run of the ball game. All of them two-run shots. Eight RBIs for Hamilton. And four home runs. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's a pleasure now to be joined by Fred Zinke, who writes for MLB.com and is currently leading not one but two experts mixed leagues. Fred, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Fred, you're leading the Labor Mixed Straight Draft and the Tout Wars Mixed Auction Draft. How comfortable are you with your leads? Uh, overall, I guess not that comfortable. I, my leads are you know, somewhere in the 10 to 20 point range depending on the, on the day, but a lot of the categories, especially in the Tout Wars League, are really tight and bad. The two, that's the one that I, I'm most concerned about hanging on to. Well, when do you stop being concerned, Fred? How far ahead do you have to be before you think you just can't get caught? I think the points aren't really the big issue. It's, it's the categories and how tight they are. Um, it, for example, in Tower I could lose, you know, three or four points in, in certain categories just in a matter of having a few bad days. Um, so I think really the categories are what you have to look at. In, uh, in labor, I feel like there's a few categories where I'm pretty safe and won't lose more than a point the rest of the season. Uh, I, I really don't feel safe until September in, uh, in pretty much any league. What were your strategies going into these two leagues, as different as they are? Uh, they were pretty similar. Uh, I decided to go uh, kind of in a, like a Moneyball, like from the movie Moneyball, kind of a plan this year. And in the movie, when Billy Bean looks at trying to value what other people aren't valuing as much, uh, I looked at, for my leagues this year, trying to really value uh, ace starters and good relievers. Uh, and staying away from the elite hitters and trying to get a deep pool of good but not great hitters. So in the labor draft, I did take Carlos Gonzalez as a hitter in the first round because I felt pretty confident I could, could take a hitter in the first round and still use that plan. But after that, I took two starters and a closer in my next three picks and then went hitter heavy after that. Um, and in the Tow Wars auction, I did a similar kind of plan. It's easier to execute in an auction where I took a couple aces in Clayton Kershaw, Madison Bumgarner, 
I think I took four closers actually in that auction, so I spent heavily in that area. And I don't think I, I, I turned dry. I, I did buy Buster Posey, but other than that, I didn't spend, I think, even $20 on any other hitter and tried to really balance my hitting where I had. I wanted to feel like every night, every hitter in my lineup had the potential to do something well and not, you know, where you've got a few dead hitting spots in your lineup. It also appeared that you kind of targeted players who had holes in their games that might have scared away other owners, guys with uh, low batting averages or zero speed or zero power, something like that. I didn't target those hitters, but I decided that I wouldn't be afraid of them. So I, I went with, so actually in, in uh, Intel, where we use on base percentage, so they weren't quite as damning, but I, I bought Dunn and, uh, and Mark Reynolds and then later in the season traded for Dan Ugla which would be an awful headache if you were in a batting average league. But I tried to. I actually did look for. I also drafted, for example, or bought Elvis Andrus, who you know who offers no power. Ichiro, Coco, Chris, who offer no power. Uh, I tried to look at some of the reasons that someone would be turned off by certain players, and use that to my advantage. Because if, if a player comes up for bidding in an auction, and many of the owners say, "Oh, I just don't want him because you know he's really weak in an area or two. Well, maybe that maybe creates a buying opportunity because now you're competing against less owners for that player. And same with in a draft. If you have a player like a Mark Reynolds who, because of his you know, strikeouts and, and low batting average, a lot of the owners say, well, forget it. I don't want Mark Reynolds on my team. Well, he might sit on the draft board for longer than he really should. So anywhere I could try to find value, I found it, even if that meant trying to think outside the box on some players. And you mentioned you ended up with four closers, partly because that's what the table gave you, but that must have been a, a significant part of the strategy. Yeah, I, I remembered actually, I tried to piece together some strategies that I'd seen in other, in other sources in recent years. I remember last year, Corey Schwartz won this league and he won it going away. And in his postseason wrap-up, I remember him commenting that in general over the years, he feels like if, if he gets good closers or if his closers turn out well, then his team tends to be really high in the standings whether they win or not, but they're, they're up there. And if he struggles with saves all season, uh, then he usually doesn't end up very high in the standings. It was a pretty simple philosophy, but when I thought of it, I was like, you know, it's really true. You end up spending a lot of resources, whether it's fab money, whether it's through trades, trying to fix your closer problems if you have them. So from that end, I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try to not have closer problems. I'm going to have enough closers there. I think you really need two in a 15-team league, maybe maybe three at points during the season, I said, you know, I'm going to come out with enough closer depth that I don't have to, you know, chase them during the season. Uh, taking that philosophy from Corey and then also taking the, the old philosophy from the baseball forecaster for years, which is, you know, stars and scrubs with your pitching and spread the wealth with your hitting so that, you know, one hitting injury doesn't ruin your team or one hitter having a terrible season doesn't hurt your team. All that said, you have been pretty fortunate as well, and it's it's said that when you have a well-matched league where everyone is a pretty decent player, decent experience, has access to good information and so forth, has thought about the game, that luck plays an increasing role. How much of a difference do you think luck has played in your uh, outstanding performance in these leagues? Yeah, definitely I've been able to avoid, uh, especially I knew those starting pitcher spots would be so valuable because I spent a lot on them or drafted them early, and I was able to avoid the pitcher bust. I don't have Cole Hamels, uh, Matt Kane, those players who, who, you know, demanded ace spending but haven't returned ace value. Now, in that regard, I have been lucky. I would have been completely fine with having either pitcher on my team and then would have been disappointed with them so far. Um, from, a, from an injuries perspective, I've been, especially in labor, pretty lucky. In Wars, I've played without Granderson and Aaron Hill for pretty much all the season. 
and now with Josh Willingham. So I have had some injuries in that area. Um, but I think the plan's gone pretty well where I wasn't totally dependent on just a couple guys. But I think definitely had I had those key starting pitcher, either injuries or bad performances, sometimes bad performances are worse, at least with an injury, the guy gets out of your lineup. The bad performance, you, you, know, you feel the need to continue to run him out there, and then he just kills you every week. Um, I, I've been able to avoid those, which I've been pretty lucky about. And I think now I feel like I'll probably be fine for the second half. I guess someone like Madison Bumgarner could bust in the second half, but I think usually if a starting pitcher at that skill level gets off to a good start in the season and is rolling along, he'll, unless he gets injured, he'll probably be able to finish it out. Well, you don't have to tell me. I had Cole Hamels and David Price in that same Tout Wars league, and uh, it has turned out very, very disastrously. Fred, uh, in both leagues, you're intensely active in the trade market, and I'm wondering how many trades do you think you've made so far this year in these two leagues? I think in Tout Wars, I'm probably around 10. Now, not all of those have been really big trades. Some of them could be just little ones for fab money or, or, or smaller players back and forth. But probably 10 and probably about six or so, maybe seven really like big ones. And then in labor, I'd say I'm a little lower, but probably around eight, and, and we don't deal fat money in that league. So all of those have been player-for-player player trades, and a lot of them pretty significant. So, yeah, I, I'm always quite active on the trade market. How much help have those trades been for you? I don't really know. I don't keep track of, you know, of the effects of each trade. And, and when you make a lot of trades like I do, it's really hard to anyways because sometimes there's players who you've traded for and then traded away in a short time span. I know Ernesto Freire I only owned for a few hours at one point last week. Um, so I don't really keep track of, of the pluses and minuses of it. If I feel good about a trade, I make it, and then I move on. I don't look in the rearview mirror. You know, once it's done, it's done. That's my roster from now on, and I'll start thinking about what I can do next. But I try not to fret about what happens with the players that I gave up. If you're not sure that you're making progress, why, why do you want to do the trades at all? Well, I think it accomplishes... A different goal. I mean, everybody's goal in a fantasy baseball league is to win the league, and that and that's terrific if you can win the league. But realistically, there's 15 of us, and only one of us can win the league. Uh, but what else? We're all we're all really looking for in a fantasy baseball league is fun and entertainment, and 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 you know interaction with the other owners and an enjoyable experience. And if you make a lot, of, I find if you get, engage in a lot of trade talk and make a lot of trades during the season, you get to know the other guys in your league. You know, you, you talk socially sometimes in those emails back and forth too, which is great. Uh, and, and you're involved in it, and it gives you a great experience. I mean, last year I didn't win until I finished fourth, uh, but I made a ton of trades, uh, dealt with some really good guys, had a lot of fun going back and forth on those things, was active on the free agent market. You know, I had a great experience. I was really involved with it, and I didn't win, but, that, but that's okay. Did those trades, you know, cost me winning or, or help me to do better? I, I don't really know, but I know each time I made a trade I felt good about it, and I'm going to continue to do that, you know, in any league, as long as the other owners are, are willing to be active along with me, I want myself and the other owners to get as much out of the league as possible. So how do you approach the, the idea of you, make it, you want to make a trade, how do you approach it uh, philosophically, for want of a better term? Yeah, I think I try to, to go at it differently than most people. I think that's why I make so many trades. I think most people, when they want to make a trade, the first thing they think about is, you know, what do I want or what do I want to get? But then the other owner actually doesn't care at all what you want or what you want to get. They care about their own team and, and how they can plug holes in their own team and, and how they can improve their own squad. So when I'm looking to make a trade, the first thing, or if I have some free time to look for trades, the first thing I'm, I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the other rosters in my league. I'm going to put myself in that owner's shoes and think, if I was that owner, what would be bothering me about my team, whether it's a category, 
whether it's uh, a position, but what would be whether it's an injury they just suffered that they need to, to deal with. But what would be bothering me about that if I was that owner about his team? And then, so what would motivate him to want to engage in trade talks and to want to make a trade? And then after that point, once I've identified that from another owner, then I'm going to look, think about myself, and I'm going to think about what players on that owner's team, kind of relative to where he drafted them or relative to how much he paid for them or how they're playing, what players on his team do I feel like I would have like reasonable expectations for and that I might be able to trade for that player. And then from there, you see if you can make a match, whether it's a one-for-one, one, a two-for-two, two, a three-for-three, three, or something like that. But, but I'm always going to approach the other owner as far as saying, okay, you know, it looks like you could use another starting pitcher or it looks like you need more outfield depth. I happen to be able to trade that to you. You know, I'm interested in these guys from your team. Let's see if we can make a match. And that usually goes a lot better than just emailing an owner and saying, I need a shortstop. You have a shortstop. What, you know, how can I get that shortstop? Because you want to you want to find the hook for them. What what do they what are they going to get out of it? Put the customers' needs first. You make more sales. Uh, that certainly uh, stands to reason. Uh, tell me this: when you decide you're going to make a trade offer in these leagues, dealing with other experts, usually how many backs and forths do you have before you settle on a deal? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty random. Sometimes time dependent. Uh, I have made some last minute trades this year. Usually there's a few backs and forths for sure. I mean, the first couple emails are just, and I always do them over email. I, I don't, I've never done them on the phone. It's just more convenient, I think, for everyone to do it that way. But usually the first couple emails back and forth are, you know, kind of measuring each other. Like, do you want to make a trade? Do you want to sell up that position? Or do you have a different plan than, than what I'm seeing? And then once we've established that there is interest on both sides, then it's kind of identifying which players, each person values on the other person's team because there's no sense really going around and around about players the other the other guy's not interested in. And then it gets down to kind of firm offers back and forth. And there, and sometimes, you know, it's really quick and, it's, you know, I, I make an offer, the other guy sends me an offer and, and that's it. Or maybe one quick tweak and then that's it, you make the, you make the trade. Sometimes it's uh, several emails back and forth and I've had some guys, you know, there might be 20 emails back and forth through a weekend uh, trying to sew up exactly exactly what you want and uh if i do have a bad habit sometimes i bend a little too far i think at the at the, at the end to kind of get what i want to trade but whatever it's it's all it's all in good fun i'm wondering about your trade yield of all the offers you throw out there how many of them end up being uh, completed trades oh that's a that's a great question how many offers do i throw out there i think it depends on how busy i am certain weeks some weeks you just have i have two little kids and some weeks you're really busy and you say and i just say to myself you know what unless someone emails me i'm probably not trading this week Sometimes you have a little more free time. Usually in any given week, uh, I might contact maybe about two different owners. So I might contact a couple different owners. I don't really need to be you know, harassing everyone. I think there's a fine line there. I need to be emailing all the other 14 owners in each league each week to try to make a trade. I'll contact a couple of guys who, who seem to be a match maybe for me and what I'm looking to do at that point in time. Uh, I'd say probably 50% of the weeks I make a trade in tout wars. I feel like this year, well, I guess I have if it's been about 10 trades so far. So maybe about half the weeks I make some sort of trade in labor, maybe not quite that as much. Some of my trades in that league were, were during spring training. But, um, but yeah, I'd say about half the time that I contact an owner, uh, I'm able to, to make some sort of trade. I like to think that I'm pretty reasonable. Uh, sometimes it just doesn't work. Sometimes the owner's just not interested. But the fact that I make so many trades, I think, shows that I, I'm pretty reasonable with my expectations. I'm not going to email a guy and say, you know, oh, can I trade you my Matt Cain for your Miguel Cabrera, and that's it. 
you know, I, I understand that, that, that these are, as you said, these are smart guys. They're experts. They're guys who work in the industry. Uh, you're not going to pull the wool over their eyes. It, it's going to be fairly even value going back and forth. Fred, this is something that comes up a lot when people talk about the mechanics of making trades. But how should one respond when, he, if you get an offer that is pretty unbalanced and kind of borderline ridiculous, not a Matt Kane for Miguel Cabrera, which you can almost make a case for depending on the categories. But what about one where some guy says, I'll give you a Zach McAllister for, for Miguel Cabrera, and you think it borders on insulting and some people take it that way. Yeah, I would never think about them as insulting. I mean, you can do that if you want. If you see your trade offer and you just think that's insulting, I'm going to just decline it and never contact the guy again. I mean, you can totally do that, but if you do that, you're never going to make a trade. So why do you that guy? Um, I mean, there, there are always opportunities there. If I get an offer from someone and so, or a counter offer from someone that to me is really lopsided, you know, away from my direction, uh, before I get all insulted about it, I'm just going to step back and say, well, maybe this guy just doesn't value those players the same way I do. So maybe the, so on one end of that trade offer, it's a no go. Either he really overvalues the guy, in my opinion, the guy he's giving up, or he really undervalues the guy that I would be giving up. So those guys are a no-go, but is there a, de- is there a philosophy in that trade that we can work around? So is he looking for, say, power, and he just doesn't value the specific power hitter he asked for from me the same as I do? So if we go in another direction, then you know, is there a trade to be had here? So I think you can get really upset and just say, oh, no, I'm not even going to email that guy back. I'm not even going to respond to those trade offers. You can totally do that if you want, but if you have the time, I mean, I think it's always worth sending a quick email back saying that wouldn't be close for me, but here's something that I would do, or that wouldn't be close for me, but if you could add in something else, then maybe then maybe we could do it. Uh, that's the only way you guys, like, you've got to go back and forth, and you have to understand that not everyone's going to value the players the same way you do. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Fred Zinke from MLB.com, and the league leader in both the tout and labor mixed draft leagues. Uh, Fred, we have a short week coming up after the All-Star break. Do you have any tactics for uh, handling a short week? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that uh, if you put some thought into that short week, you can make some gains in your standings. Uh, one thing that I, I don't think owners think about enough is is closers in that short week. They're only going to have three or four games where they could possibly get a save. Um, that's about half the opportunities that they have in a typical week. I think the average closer gets about one and a half saves a week. So in a short week, you're looking at less than a save. You're going to get zero to one save out of a closer. Starting pitchers, though, if they start in that short week, well, most weeks they only start once. So if they start in that short week, you're actually getting 100% of what you usually get in a week out of that starting pitcher. So I think some fantasy owners could consider if you're not in a really tight saves race, you could bench your closers in that short week. That would allow you to run out nine starters. That would allow you to probably have the most strikeouts. I mean, almost certainly have the most strikeouts in your in your league that week and hopefully the most wins also. Uh, and then you can put your closers right back in for the following week. So that's a way where you can, can kind of maximize those opportunities. Also, I think when you look at, at your hitting, uh, if you have hitters in really tough matchups in such a short week, then you could consider benching hitters that you normally wouldn't bench. So maybe a base stealer who's facing a team that's really hard to run on uh, or a hitter who's just, you know, lined up against just, you know, three really good pitchers, three almost aces. I mean, you're not going to sit Carlos Gonzalez or someone like that, but, you know, a middle-of-the-road type hitter who you normally just run out there every week. If the matchups look terrible, then that might be a week, you know, to look at someone who's, you know, who's facing the Astros or a team that struggles with pitching. We talked earlier, Fred, about moving in the standings, and how do you think your place in the standings should dictate how you manage your roster, including trade decisions? 
Well, I think uh, I think at the, we're in the we're, we're at the middle of the season, so a lot of the things are fairly set. You're probably not going to come back from you know 13th place in a league all the way up to first. But that being said, you could still come back. A lot. There's still half a season left, so anyone can move up and down the standings a lot. I think the way you need to uh, look at your roster from this point forward is you know where are you in your league and what kind of risk do you want to take on for the remainder of the season. If you're in the middle of your league. Uh, this might be a good time to start taking on more risk through your trades or your signings, especially though I think through your trades, uh, and look for guys who maybe you can buy low on and, or, and, if, and those guys have the potential to really surge during the second half or guys who are boom and bust type guys. We, we mentioned those Adam Dunn, you know, Mark Reynolds type guys, uh, you know, who could hit 20 home runs in the second half or they could hit five or seven and have a terrible batting average. If you're in the middle of your league, I think it's time to embrace that risk and say, you know, I'm going to pick up some of those guys or trade for some of those guys, and, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, and if you're at the top of your league, then you probably want to avoid those guys and uh, and go with the safer commodities, the guys who, you know, produce decent results week in, week out, but are never amazing. All right, and so are you, are you saying uh, Alex Gordon for B.J. Upton makes sense if the teams are going to swap uh, sort of the security of Alex Gordon and the lower upside for the uh, higher risk but higher upside of B.J. Upton? Yeah, that's a good example. I think uh, Gordon, you know, he's, Gordon's great. He's, sol- he's a solid player, and there's a good chance that he'll have a better second half than B.J. Upton. That being said, Gordon, doesn't, Gordon can't fill the box score to the point where Upton has at times in his career, especially in the second half last year. Uh, you're going to get your, you know, about 10 steals or about 10 homers, you know, like five steals or something like that from Gordon in the second half, a decent amount of runs in RBI. It's going to be a solid outfielder. If you're in first or second place and, you know, and you're trying and you've been carrying BJ Upton, this is the time maybe you just get rid of him for a solid guy who can help you just win that marathon. At the same time, if you're the guy in fifth or sixth place, so you think you still are in striking distance, but you need, to make some bold moves, then picking up guys like Upton, you know, are, are, are smart moves. If Upton plays in the second half like he played in the first half, you're not going to win your league. But you're fifth or sixth right now. You don't have an awesome chance of winning your league anyways. If Upton plays in the second half like he played in the second half last year and goes, you know, double-digit homers and, and a ton of steals, uh, you know, then he could be a guy who raises you up you know, 20 steals or something in the second half is, is totally something that Upton can do, and that makes a huge difference in a steals category, uh, especially in a deeper league. So he's someone who can really change your place in a couple categories in the standings in the second half. And if Upton, you know, doesn't work out in the second half and you fall from sixth place to ninth place, then so be it. I mean, there probably wasn't a prize for sixth place anyways. There are a few leagues like our Ted Wars League where uh, your fab money the following year does carry forward from how you do the you know, the previous season, in a league like that, then the Gordon-Upton type trade might not make sense because you might be looking for ways to just get to the middle of the pack and stay in the middle of the pack if you can't win the league just so you don't start next season at a disadvantage. Uh, but in most leagues, that's not the case. In most leagues, if you're in sixth, you might as well go for it and try to finish first. And if you finish ninth, then no big deal. Exactly right. And it all depends on how your league rules. Uh, the home league that I play in, an American league only, you're actually rewarded with a higher farm draft pick the higher up the standings you finish. So dropping two or three slots might matter to some owners. Personally, I don't think picking ninth versus picking sixth is that big of a difference. And and you have, as you said, if you're starting off in fifth or sixth spot and you hit the jackpot with B.J. Upton, hey, maybe you make the money. And at the very least, maybe you move up a couple of spots and get a better uh, farm draft pick. Of course, uh, everybody's mileage is going to differ uh, 
This is Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Fred Zinke from MLB.com. And Fred, the last few weeks I've been asking our featured guests to give us some picks to buy low and sell high. Always easier said than done. Maybe a hitter and a pitcher in each league in each category. And if you don't mind, we'll start with some buy lows. Uh, who's an American League hitter you think we could buy low right now? I think Ben Zobos could be a good target. I think he has something like five homers and five steals, which is, is pretty, you know, blah, kind of nothing at the, at the halfway mark of the season. But the Rays usually play good baseball in the second half. Uh, his other numbers aren't bad. Uh, his RBI and run totals are fine. He's someone who was pretty highly regarded going into the season, but his owner might have just kind of soured on him. And if you can, can look at him, you know, he could go 10 homers, 10 steals in the second half. That would be pretty good. How about in the National League, a hitter you can buy low? Sure. Well, we already mentioned Upton, who is someone you could buy low on. Uh, I like Jason Hayward a little better, sticking with the Braves, who I, I find are a lot of extremes this year as far as hot and cold. Uh, Hayward was really good in the second half last year. We all know how talented he is, and he hasn't been good in the first half, but he has shown some signs of turning it around lately. So that window might be closing fast, but I think if you if you paid close to full price for Hayward of his draft day value right now in a trade, you would get him for sure, and you might get that in the second half. How about an American League pitcher that you'd like to buy low if you could? Sure. Well, you, you already mentioned David Price. Uh, again, that window could close fast. He pitched really well. His first start coming off the DL, but his overall season numbers are poor. Uh, I don't see any reason why Price won't be a top 10 starter the rest of the season and maybe even top five, which is where he was regarded at the start of the season. So, you know, if you owned uh, Cliff Lee, for example, and, and based on his awesome season staff so far, you could get David Price plus for Cliff Lee. Well, you might get just as good of production from Price as you would have got from Lee anyways, and you might be able to get something else on top of that. Especially if you could contact Major League Baseball and have all of Price's starts be against Houston. Yeah, that would be a, a big a big advantage, but we already know he has the skills to handle the AL East, which a lot of pitchers don't. That's true. Uh, the other worry, of course, he did have the injury, and it was, it was quite long in recovering, so there's a little bit of... Uh, if you're going to make an offer on David Price, you could play that up to drive the price down maybe. How about a National League pitcher you'd like to buy low? Yeah, I'm a little hesitant on this guy, but I, I like him overall, so I want to stick with him as Ian Kennedy. He uh, was having he, he was terrible, and, and then he had a couple of good starts before he got his suspension, and he wasn't great when he came right off his suspension, but we've seen some good pitching over the last couple of years out of Ian Kennedy. Uh, I don't think he's as good as he was a couple of years ago uh, when I think he went, you know, won around 20 games, but I think he's better than he's shown so far this year. He's someone you could pick up for very little in a mixed league in a lot of mixed leagues right now, and I think could have could be a decent starter in the second half. So Ben Zobris, Jason Hayward, David Price, and Ian Kennedy it might be some intriguing buy-low targets. Let's move to the sell highs. Uh, how about an American League hitter we can sell high? Uh, this would be a, a one I don't think a lot of people would agree with me on, but I think Adam Jones uh, could be due for some second-half regression. Uh, he is not drawing blocks at all, like into a dangerous territory of not drawing blocks. I know he's a really talented player, if you look at his split stats, and they were very similar last year, this year he stole a lot of bases in May, I think seven. And last year he had a similar type of, a type of production where he had a really hot May. Uh, but other than that, Jones hasn't run the bases well like, or aggressively this season. So that stolen base total he has, which is 9 or 10 or something right now, he could be a little inflated. Um, if you take away that and then wonder if the low walk rate could eventually catch up with his batting average, Right now, you could get a lot for Adam Jones. Like he's hitting like a you know first or second round pick. If you could move him for a different first or second round pick, especially maybe someone who addresses the need, a Dustin Pedroia, for example, if you needed a middle infielder, 
Um, we could see a regression for Jones in the second half. And in the National League, who's a sell-high hitter? Well, we always want to worry about uh, lower body injuries for those base dealers. So Everett Cabrera could be a concern in the second half. He, he's dealt with the hamstring. He's coming off the DL right now. Hopefully he goes back to stealing bases like he was prior to the injury. But we do have to be wary of lower body injuries and guys who get almost all their value off their legs. He's also hit over 300. Uh, so, or he has hit over 300 so far this season, and that may not continue. So I think those two factors, if I was a Cabrera owner and you could afford to part with him, uh, if you could get a couple good weeks out of him where he steals some bases, gets some hits, then it might be time to sell high on him in the second half of July to an owner who's desperate for steals and maybe get a safer player or a more balanced player. How about an American League pitcher who's a good sell-high target? Sure, actually, I can give you a couple for this one. Uh, I know Scott Feldman just got traded to the Orioles. I'm not that excited about Feldman in the American League. I know he's going to get more run support. Hopefully it all works out for him, but that American League East is a grind and especially compared to the National League Central, I worry about him. And another American League East pitcher I worry about is R.A. Dickey. I know he has been pitching better lately, and hopefully it all turns around for him in the second half. But again, that American League East is a grind. Uh, you know, He would not have put up numbers even close to what he put up last season had he pitched in the American League East last season. He's going to see those teams a lot in the second half. It's a tough schedule. If, he strings, if Dickey strings together a few quality starts, and you can convince another owner in your league that, that he's back and that he's an ace again, I would be happy to sell him for a safer ace or for someone who's you know, a National League guy who's a really really safe number two starter. Uh, how about a National League sell-high pitcher? Yeah, and in the area of you, know, you just don't know how he's doing what he's doing, Jeff Locke could be, could be that guy. He, he's pitched great so far, but the strikeout-to-walk rate isn't what you would expect from a pitcher with his ERA and his whip. That suggests that those two categories are going to rise for him in the second half. Uh, when those rise, then the win total could drop. He doesn't have a long track record of success. And we've seen from, I, I hope, you know, that the Pirates go, you know, the full season and make the playoffs this year. It would be a great story. But we have seen the Pirates the last couple seasons have really good first halves and then struggle in the second half. And when you look at that roster, it's not that deep. It's, I don't think it's that great of a roster. I could definitely see the Pirates regress as a team in the second half and Locke be a big part of that. I was going to ask, I know you watch all of the baseball races very closely, and I and you live near Toronto, and I'm wondering what you think of the Jays' chances in the American League East. Do you think the Jays have any legitimate chance of winning the division in the American League East, first of all, and second of all, uh, maybe making the wild card at least? Yeah, I actually don't think they have a, a realistic chance of either, especially winning the division. I, I think Boston's a solid team, uh, and I don't think the Blue Jays have a good chance of catching them. Uh, the hitting has come around for sure. Pitching's just not there, and Morrow won't be back for a while, and Hap won't be back for a little while. And I mean, when you're counting on Jay Hap, you, you're not in a great spot in the first place. I know, I know the Blue Jays have the option of going out and trying to become buyers at the deadline and pick up more starting pitching. I don't think it's the right move for them. They already sold a lot of their prospects to get to the point they're at. And really, the Jays aren't built for one season. I mean, Dickey, Burley, those guys, Reyes, those guys are going to be there for a few years now. I, if I was Anthopolis, I'd go in the other direction. I, I, I think I, you know, they've had a, a okay run a little bit lately, but then they've fallen off again. If they can get something decent for Josh Johnson, great. If there's teams who are looking for a base stealer like Bonifacio, great. And maybe recoup some of those assets you lost over the winter. Establish, you know, which guys from this season are part of your core. What do you want to do with Adam Lynn? That kind of thing. And, and then move into next offseason. I don't think all is lost for Toronto long term, but... 
they're chasing some really good teams. If they were in a weaker division, it would be a different story. But I don't see teams like the Orioles, the Rays. You know, I don't even see the Indians collapsing in the second half. They're chasing good teams. It's, it's a tough road to go when, you, when you've fallen now. What, I don't know what they are this morning, but around seven games out of the wild card. And speaking of the, uh, of the Indians, you say you think they might be for real. Don't you still think Detroit's got to be a, a pretty significant favorite in the American League Central? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I still think Detroit will pull away at some point, especially having watched them the last few days and they're here in Toronto. The rotation's just so good indeed. They could use some more bullpen help, but so could a lot of teams. That's probably the easiest thing to pick up at the deadline. The middle of the order and the top, well, the top half of that order is just so good, and the rotation looks so good, and they could still have the option of putting Smiley in it at some point if they want to. I think they'll pull away, but I think the Indians, I, I picked the Indians to, to be a wildcard team at the start of the season kind of as my sleeper pick. Uh, and I think, especially if Trevor Bauer could get his, himself sorted out, which is a lot to say, I think, the way he's pitched lately, but there is some depth there if Bauer can join the rotation. And that's just it's a deep, deep lineup of, again, like I guess like I like for my fantasy teams, good, not great hitters. There's a lot of hitters in that lineup who can do damage, and Kipnis has really emerged for them. He has. He's a borderline top 15 player in the major leagues as far as baseball HQ fantasy value is concerned. And before I let you go, Fred, I have to ask, what did you make of Texas signing Manny Ramirez? I asked Jock Thompson this earlier. Uh, our consensus was probably not going to be that big a help, especially for fantasy owners. Uh, what's your take? Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not that intrigued by it. I think it's more of a story than a, than a really a news piece. If uh, I think I'll be I'll be surprised if Manny makes it all the way up to play on the Rangers this season. I mean, maybe when rosters expand in September, sure. Uh, even in an American League only league, I still wouldn't be interested in him. I'd want to actually see him play for the Rangers and collect a few hits before I was even interested in him in an American League only league. And I, I know at that point, someone else in my league would have him because those are deep leagues and, and there's there's a value in just kind of jumping on it on a on a chance. So, yeah, I'm, I don't know. I'm just not interested in Manny Ramirez at all anymore. And staying with uh, real baseball, just for one last second, uh, if you had to put together a trade you think really might happen in the major leagues between now and the end, uh, what, do you think, what do you think is a really good percentage play that's going to happen as far as trades are concerned in the big leagues? Well, Amber, I, I haven't really thought about what's, what's going to happen. I know, and we talked about, you know, that I watch all the Blue Jays games, and I was thinking recently, you know, what do you do with Josh Johnson and where does he go? And I was trying to think of teams where he would work early in the season. I thought Boston, maybe, they could use more rotation depth, but the way he's pitched in the American League, that doesn't, I don't think Boston's really would be that excited to get him. Uh, and then a team that we just mentioned that I think could be interested in him would be the Pirates. And the Pirates, you know, Johnson will fare better in the National League. He has fared better in the National League. Pittsburgh's quietly done a great job with their starting pitching the last few years. You know, Lariano's pitching well for them. A.J. Burnett, you know, resurrected his career there. They're having success with Jeff Watt. They've had success in, in sports with guys like Jeff Carstens, who aren't especially talented. Um, so they've done a good job with pitchers. I think that would be a team if the, if the Jays want to bow out of the race in a couple weeks. The Pirates throw a prospect their way. doesn't have to probably be an amazing prospect at this point. Uh, the Jays pick up something for Johnson, save a little face there. And you get Johnson in against some of those National League offenses. He's in a contract year. He's going to be highly motivated to finish the year better than he started it. Any chance, uh, something I've been seeing on the web, uh, of course the web's a good place to see lots of stuff about trades being made, but what about uh, Jonathan Papelbon being traded to somebody who needs a closer? You mentioned Detroit for one. Yeah, I think that would be a, could be a good fit for Detroit. I think a closer makes a lot of sense for the Tigers. I, I know Benoit's 
been okay. But like, he, he could be fine in that role for sure, but he's also terrific in a setup role and gives them a really deep bullpen. I think Detroit can go one of two ways. You can either say, we're going with Benoit, and we're going to pick up some setup men, which is fine. Uh, you know, Darren Oliver types, those types of guys uh, to fill in the seventh and eighth innings. But uh, that, that could run into a problem. I know they don't like to pitch Benoit in too many days in a row. And you get into a playoff series, and games are tight, and you might be putting them in situations you don't want to use them in. So it might make sense for the Tigers. I don't sign the checks for the Detroit Tigers, but it might make sense for them to pick up Papelbon or another closer off a, a non-contender and uh, and really go for it. I mean, they've got that window right now where Fielder and Cabrera are really in their prime and, and their rotation is so good. I, I, if I was Tigers, I would definitely look at uh, – and they have Tigers have prospects and young players. They could for, for sure you know, satisfy a team like the Phillies' requirements to get Papelbon if the Phillies will eventually just – you know, stop being so stubborn and bow out. And uh, it would help the uh, Phillies' financial situation to get rid of. That's a big salary for not a lot of innings in a year, as is often the case with the high-priced closer. Yeah, and the Phillies have holes, and they have money to spend. So if they can get Papelbon off the books, they can go right back into free agency and spend that money. I think the Phillies have big problems really coming up in that that's an aging roster with a lot of money invested in some aging players. Uh, they're really going to have to decide do they want to keep piecing this thing together. That doesn't seem like a great idea, but otherwise, what, like, what do they want to do with Ryan Howard, Chase Utley, you know, those players who are on Jimmy Rollins who are on the downside of their career? Are they just going to continue to probably in vain try to catch the Braves and uh, probably eventually the Nationals once they kind of get it rolling and maybe even the Mets in another year or two who are starting to build some good young players? Or do they want to try to tear it all down and I mean, right now they seem to be resisting tearing it all down, but I guess trading Papelbon would be a way to tear it down a little bit without really tearing it all down. You could for sure go back into free agency and get a different closer and you know, probably get a pretty good prospect from the Tigers. All right, Fred, as we wrap up, please remind our listeners how they can read more of your work. Sure. Well, you can, uh, you can read my work on MLB.com and MLblog.com. Uh, uh, they can also follow me on Twitter, uh, at Fred Zinke. That's F-R-E-D-Z-I-N-K-I-E or Z-I-N-K-I-E if you're uh, up here in Canada. Thanks, Fred. Appreciate you taking the time. We'll try to catch up with you at least once more this season. Yeah, anytime. Thank you very much. Fred Zinke writes for MLB.com, MLblogs.com. And as we said, he's got a nice lead in two different expert mixed leagues. Our regular commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. to I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third-place coach, uh, Joe Malfitano, had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home plate. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. A one-handed home run by Kurt Gibson, and the Dodgers have won it 5-4. to four. I am stunned, Bill. I have seen a lot of dramatic finishes in a lot of sports, but this one might top almost every other one. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. 
Minor League Minute will be taking a hiatus this week. Rob Gordon taking the 4th of July weekend off. Jock Thompson is on deck with Master Notes. And leading off, it's HQ matchups, looking at individual pitcher skills for coming games and how certain pitchers match up against opposing lineups. The scale runs from 5, which is a must-start, to minus 5, which is a must-sit. With the skinny on games for this week, here's Ryan Bloomfield looking at Hector Santiago against the Cubs and Zach Greinke facing the Diamondbacks. Hector Santiago is an intriguing option with a 2.75 matchup rating Monday against the Cubs. The splits favor Santiago here since the Cubs are hitting just 240 off lefties as well as a 231 batting average and 280 on base away from Wrigley Field this season. Santiago's pitched better of late too with 35 strikeouts in his last 30 innings to go along with a 3.63 expected ERA and a 92 BPV over that time. Santiago's recent skill surge and favorable matchup present a good opportunity here in deeper leagues. CC Sabathia's current 4.06 ERA is on pace to be his worst since 2004. The 32-year-old has racked up 200-plus innings in six straight seasons, but his skills suggest this isn't all doom and gloom. CC has maintained a 4.1 strikeout-to-walk ratio, which is still very much elite. The higher ERA comes from him giving up a few more fly balls, along with an unlucky 14% home run per fly ball rate. Sabathia gets a very favorable 2.48 matchup rating against the Royals on Monday, so he should be active in all lineups. And on the flip side, Zach Greinke gets a pretty low 0.52 matchup rating against his old friends, the Diamondbacks, on Monday. This will be Greinke's first start against Arizona since the infamous brawl between the two clubs took place back on June 11th. Greinke gave up seven walks and five runs in his last outing, despite getting the win at Coors Field but his skills overall this year are just simply down across the board. Both his strikeout and walk rates are the worst they've been in years, and Greinke's 427 expected ERA says that his 4.30 surface ERA is pretty much spot on. There are plenty of warning signs for Greinke here in this matchup at hitter-friendly Chase Field. And finally, Eric Bedard is a risky play Sunday against Texas, to put it lightly, as he gets a negative 0.92 matchup rating. Bedard's typically been known as a high strikeout pitcher, but his strikeouts per nine this year is down to 7.7, and his walks are up, resulting in a strikeout-to-walk rate of 1.8, which would be his lowest in nine years. Bedard's high fly ball rate of 47% shouldn't play very well in Rangers' ballpark, which significantly boosts run scoring and home runs per BaseballHQ.com's park factors. Expect a big day for Rangers hitters on Sunday. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Daily streaming league and salary cap gamers should take note of Ryan Bloomfield, Troy Martell, and Brian Brickley, who do comprehensive starting pitcher matchup reports every day at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with Jock Thompson talking this week about how it's time to assess that keeper league rebuild. If you're still among your deep keeper league's bottom feeders now in July 4th weekend, you probably ain't moving up particularly if you haven't done anything significant to date about your predicament. And if you haven't, it's time. But before you make any decisions, some questions and self-assessment are necessary to stop you from repeating some of the same old mistakes that have led to your current situation. 
First and foremost, are you enjoying yourself? Because as Ron Chandler noted earlier in this series, the reality of a six-month game is that winning takes an incredible amount of effort and losing can be a drag. Simply owning a team, following along with the game, and staying in touch with friends meets your satisfaction threshold. You don't need to change or rebuild anything. Do you relish the challenge of and have the requisite time for what could be a long rebuild? If not, perhaps your current league format or competition level isn't a good match. Depending on your tolerance, rules, league, league depth, and competition, a keeper dynasty league can be extremely unforgiving. Perhaps you're better off in a year-to-year redraft league, or even one of the monthly leagues that Ron Chandler is starting up. How often and long have you dwelled among the also-rans in your league or in the second division? If it's been three years or longer, what's your prognosis for next year? Assess why your team is where it is, the past decisions you've made, what you need, and how long the rebuild might take. Run this by another league owner or two. Review your current roster, identify your rock-solid player holds and those you're willing to cut, who you're willing to give up that could help other teams, and identify your dead weight and immediate cuts. Then remove the untouchable label from your rock-solid holds because in your position, no one's untouchable. And repeat this phrase often because this is your new trade mantra. Obviously, it's not to say you'll deal Bryce Harper's future for a handful of limited ceiling guys in a quality-for-quantity deal, but you'll need to be flexible. Assess your major league free agent list and how it can help you remove dead weight immediately. Assess players who have fallen off the radar for various reasons, including performance, expired prospect status, season-long injuries, etc. Research these injury dates, get a current update, and a current return time frame for all of these players. Remember that Kendrys Morales took two seasons off but is now back earning double-digit dollars. If you aren't familiar with the names or the status of names like Corey Lupke or Ruby De La Rosa, you've got more work to do. Assess your minor league free agent list and how it can address both your long- and short-term needs. By all means, check the preseason top 100 list to identify overlooked and unattached players, but also check out the mid-season top prospect lists and the June amateur draft as well, because a half-season has passed and a lot has changed since you last took inventory. Are you familiar with names like Mike Franco or Chris Bryant? If not, get busy. Assess the current championship race in your league and what you can offer the contenders. Fully engage these contenders, particularly those who are active traders, and let those who aren't know that you're engaging them. Remind both that one has to give in order to get. Have you been an active trader? Because if so, this may be part of your problem, and you may need to slow this down. If not, get to know your active traders. Again, trade with your league's contenders, but respect your league's race. And finally, reassess your tools, favorite websites, and daily routines. And there you have it. There's no quick fixes here. That's not in the Deep Keeper League lexicon. You're always going to have work to do. And remember, as we first noted, first and foremost, that this needs to be a labor of love. That's Jock Thompson, Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. Of course, our American League beat reporter and a member of the Masternotes rotation at BaseballHQ.com and BaseballHQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of July the 5th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with MLB.com contributor and the leader of labor and tout mixed leagues, Fred Zinke. Fred's a great guy to talk to. And I think I'm going to go check my email and expect two more trade offers from Fred. 
I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Todd Zola came by for his weekly chat. Our HQ Matchups commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our Master Notes commentator this week, doing double duty, Jock Thompson. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com now and in the coming days for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column looks at the halfway point of 2013. Ray Murphy's Speculator column looks at the downside risks of league leaders. And the Minor League Collops Report looks at Dodgers right-hander Jose Dominguez, White Sox right-hander Simon Castro, and many more. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, buyer's guides, facts and flukes, division outlooks, pitcher matchups, and so much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also feel free to join the more than 140 people. You can also feel free to join the more than 140 people who are now part of Davitt's Army, my own personal Twitter followers, at Patrick Davitt. <laughs> Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.